So welcome to this afternoon. Uh, again, we're here uh, to worship the Lord. Um, and uh, our text for this afternoon is going to be out of John chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 21. And what I'm actually going to do is, as I read the text now, I'm going to start in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, and just go through 21. But follow along in your Bibles if you can. If you have them with you, please open them up to John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 is where we will start. And this is the word of God. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name beholding his signs with which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things unless the signs, excuse me, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born Again, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. 
but he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in in God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we come to you again this afternoon to hear of the gospel, of the good news. We thank you, dear God, that uh, in it, before all time in that covenant of redemption, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit agreed to save a people. And Father, we thank you. We are the recipients of that wonderful plan whereby we have been drawn out of the world, been made alive, and been granted these grace gifts to believe and to repent. Father, we pray that you would be with us this afternoon. We are conscious that our bellies might be full, that we are perhaps tired after having worked a long week, but we ask your God, give us strength by your Holy Spirit to see with spiritual eyes as Jesus commands us to do, to understand spiritual things because we have your Spirit And Father, to praise you for your great goodness in your plan of salvation. We pray, Father, bless us now during this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, getting up to speed in this context in the Gospel of John, we're going to see a couple things just briefly in in chapter 1. John, in this Gospel, he declares at the very beginning of chapter 1, the deity of Jesus Christ in those opening verses, if you remember. And then he speaks of the witness of John the Baptist. And what is John the Baptist doing? Well, he's baptizing. And guess who he baptizes? He baptizes Jesus Christ. And then the gospel writer mentions how the disciples of John the Baptist begin to follow this rabbi who was baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus Christ. And then... We see Jesus going on to choose at least four of his initial disciples. And then in chapter 2, we read about the miracle at the wedding feast in Cana. If you remember, Jesus turned water into wine. From Cana, Jesus and his disciples go to Capernaum to be with Jesus' family, perhaps to rest a bit. And then from there, they go to the Passover at Jerusalem, where if you remember there, Jesus cleanses the temple. And they take great offense at what he did. So there Jesus tells the Jews that they will destroy the temple of God and not the physical temple that took 46 years to build, but rather Jesus is speaking in chapter 2, verse 21 of the temple of his body. So then in verse 23 of chapter 2, he tells us, many believed in his name. Many who were witnessing what Jesus was doing, how he cleansed the temple, the miracles that he was doing, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was performing. And this would have been good. This should have been recognized by Jews who were waiting for the Messiah. They should have been observant of all that Jesus Christ was doing. But verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2 tell us, that Jesus Christ was not entrusting himself to them. So now we come to our text this afternoon in John chapter 3. And yes, it contains that all-famous verse, John 3, 16. You know, you see the signs at football games and soccer games, and you just see it, John 3, 16, and hopefully people are reading it. But that's what we're going to focus on this afternoon, verses 1 to 21 in John chapter 3. And the main question this afternoon, you need to ask yourself, and I would beg you, to consider is this, how may I have eternal life? That's the big question for everybody. Old, young, big, small, smart people, 
doctors of theology like Nicodemus or somebody who just started homeschool in TK, like maybe one of the little rude boys, right? How may I have eternal life? So my desire for you, my brethren, this afternoon is if you are a Christian, I want you to recognize from these 21 verses that you have been saved by the grace of God, the Spirit. You've also been saved by the grace of God, the Son. You've also been saved by the grace of God, the Father. All three persons of this Trinity are thoroughly involved in the saving of sinners. And because you've been born from above, regenerated, quickened in your spirit, and made alive, you have also been given grace gifts, particularly two in the text, faith and repentance. And they come from God, the Father, who is a sovereign Savior. So faith and repentance are not gifts that you exercise only one time. We've sort of talked about this before as we've been going through the London Baptist Confession and Sunday School. But these grace gifts are grace gifts that we all exercise on a daily basis. Not just one time in life, but grace gifts that we manifest every single day of our lives for the rest of our lives. But what if you're not a Christian? Or maybe you don't know if you're a Christian. I want you to see that right now, you are living by the mercy of the Godhead. Pastor Jason mentioned it this morning. God will suffer long with sinners, will he not? He did that with, those, with, with Ahab and that wicked Jezebel. He suffered 25 years before he executed his judgment. So right now, if you're not believing in Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that you too are living within this canopy of the mercy of the Godhead, namely in that this free offer of saving grace to you is being offered. It's being offered. And you cannot make yourself spiritually alive. Let's just bring that out at the very beginning because that's going to be my first point. Yet God has sent his son into the world to save sinners just like you and me and everyone else in this building. And the gospel commands to everyone, particularly to you, is that you would believe in Jesus and repent of your sins. Yes, there's gospel data. You know, we've talked about that. You've got to talk about the deity of Jesus the three persons of the Trinity. You got to talk about a lot of things, but the simple gospel command is believe in Jesus and repent of your sins. If you're not a believer, that's all you need to worry about today. Believe in Jesus and repent of your sins. You don't need to consider anything else. Why? Well, I'm going to show you that by Nicodemus's example, you won't be able to understand those hard to understand spiritual things. And you only have to obey these two commands. Believe in Jesus and repent of your sins. That's it. So the title I've chosen for the sermon this afternoon is Believe and Repent. Very simple. And I have three main headings because I'm a Baptist. Okay. And these are drawn from the text. So here are my exhortations. Number one, you must be born again, be born from above, and be made alive by the sovereign spirit. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 10. You must be born again, be born from above, and made alive by the sovereign spirit. Number two, you must believe in, place your faith in, and entrust yourself to the sovereign savior. We're going to see that in verses 11 to 17. You must believe in, place your faith in, and entrust yourself to the sovereign savior. 
And then the third point will be, you must repent of your sins and turn to the practice of the holiness of a sovereign God. Verses 18 to 21, you must repent of your sins and turn to the practice of the holiness of a sovereign God. So those are going to be my three exhortations for this afternoon. So first, if you want to follow along with me in verse 1, first of all, you must be born again, be born from above, and made alive by the sovereign spirit. Verse 1 starts out this way. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Right there in Jerusalem, which is where this is taking place, we have a Pharisee, of the, uh, a man of the, uh, of the Pharisees, of the strictest sect. And, and by the way, you know that they were vigorous enemies of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. But we find out about this man, Nicodemus, in, in John 19, that he was probably wealthy. You know, he brought a lot of, I think it was, I don't remember exactly how much myrrh he brought for the burial of Jesus. But probably a wealthy man. He's called a ruler of the Jews. Probably a religious uh, uh, ruler within the Sanhedrin itself. And by title, we would equate it sort of to a doctor of theology. We would say, this man, this guy knew his stuff. He knew his theology. So here he comes at night, a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2, this man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can say, can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So it's nighttime, and that shouldn't be necessarily suspect because what we're told is Jewish theologians typically had theological discussions at night. If you go to pretty much any conference, what do the men do late at night after the conference? They hang out and talk theology, right? So that's probably what's going on here. And he addresses Jesus Christ by the term or by the word rabbi, which is sort of like saying, I'm admitting that you're someone great. You're, you're, you're large in all, all of our estimation. It's sort of like saying your eminence, okay? But he also calls Jesus a teacher. He says, you've come from God as a teacher. And we're reminded from Isaiah chapter 2, verse two and three, that the Jews would be looking for a Messiah who would teach the people. So they saw this in Jesus Christ. They recognized that he has come from God as a teacher and he's doing signs, right? He's doing these signs and these signs are attesting to the fact that God is with him. So far, Nicodemus is making a pretty good confession of Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, he says, we know, right? So in a sense, he's speaking for the Pharisees, but we know he's alone. He's speaking for himself, but he at least acknowledges these things of Jesus Christ. And the idea of being sent by God, think of authority, uh, think of, of, of uh, the apo- uh, God who sent the son, the son who chose disciples and apostles and sent them out. So what we're, th- what, we're, what we're talking about is the authority that was given to Jesus Christ by God the Father, all of these things this Jewish man is admitting about Jesus Christ. So then he says in verse 3, here's Jesus' answer. And he doesn't even, there's no question actually in, 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 in uh, verse 2. But Jesus is going to assume a question. 
because he obviously knows the heart of men. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He goes straight to the point, which is the issue of salvation. Now, this is the first time he says truly, truly. He says it three times in this text. And you know, when something is repeated three times, that's very, very, very important. Okay, and I've probably beaten that dead horse a lot before. But truly, truly, as a teacher, he starts off this way. Amen, amen. What does that sound like? See, when we pray and we're asking the Lord for something, we close it off with amen. In other words, what we're saying, God, may this be your will. This is our desire. May this be your will. Amen. So when Jesus starts off, what he's actually is saying is, this is the truth. This is the truth of God. He's not praying that this would be the truth of God. He's not hoping it would be, but he starts off with truly, truly. I think some translations say, behold, but truly, truly, amen, amen, this is the truth. So this teacher now that that Nicodemus is recognizing is coming to Nicodemus, and what Jesus is saying is, I say to you, I'm here to teach you something. And here's, and here's what I'm here to teach you. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you must be born again. What, a Pharisee? Of the strictest sect of Judaism? A doctor of theology? Yes, Judas, you must be born again. Be born from above and made alive by the sovereign spirit. If you wants to see the kingdom of God. But, Nicodemus has a question now. He finally opens up his question in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? This is his question. He begins to question, first of all, how does this take place? How can one be born again? We, weren't, we were there when we were born. We just don't remember, Right? But it's a, it's a natural question. He questions if he can have a natural birth again. Can he go or do men go? Or are they expected to go back into the mother's womb to be born again? Especially when you're old. That would be pretty uncomfortable. So Jesus, again, goes to the point in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Amen, amen. I'm telling you some truth here. I'm not asking God, may this be so. I'm telling you this is so. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I know some have, some have thought, well, maybe this is, is this referring to baptism? No, it's not referring to baptism. If you go to Ezekiel, as a matter of fact, I'm going to go to it. I just want to read it, just a few, few verses uh, from it. In, in Ezekiel 36, this is a reference to the new covenant, verses 25 through, through 27. Ezekiel, the prophet, says this to the people about God. Verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe 
all my ordinance. So this is, these are dry verses. There's no real water here. Jesus Christ is not referring to water baptism in John chapter 3, verse 5. But, but what does Ezekiel 36 tell us of? Well, it tells us that in the new covenant, every single child of God will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, be given a new heart, and be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's what that cleansing refers to back as we go to John chapter 3. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, as a Pharisee and doctor of theology in Israel, should have understood that. He should have understood that, but he didn't. And I want to say also this verse is not referring at all to baptismal regeneration. If you remember, uh, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, in verses 20 to 23, it says he believed and he was baptized. And then Peter gives him these great words of condemnation because he thought, what? That he could get the Holy Spirit if I just fork out some money, Right? I want what you've got, apostles. I want the Holy Spirit of God. I've got some money for you. No, you can't do that. You can't buy yourself into the way of the Spirit of God or into the kingdom of God. So we're not talking about water baptism here in verse 5. We're not talking about baptismal regeneration here. We're simply talking about the same thing in verse 3. It's just you must be born again. You must be born again by the sovereign spirit of God. You must be born again, be born from above and made alive by the sovereign spirit of God. Or, and here's the, con- here's, here's the condition or the, a word that tells us about a condition, unless. So this is absolutely true. And unless this takes place, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. Unless you're made born again, Unless you're born from above, made alive by the sovereign spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So what Jesus does now in verse 6 is he just, hey, this is just the truth. I said I was going to tell you the truth. Now I'm going to give you uh, some natural, um, logical truth that hopefully you can understand. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is is spirit or is spiritual. We could say that which is born of the flesh is fleshly, not necessarily in a sinful way, but human, and that which is born of the spirit is spiritual. That's what Jesus says in in verse 6. Natural men and women produce natural babies from the womb. See, Nicodemus understands that part, right? Natural, little, and if you've ever held a baby, you know, right? Little babies are weak and frail, you know, and then they start growing up and you come to find out your little baby's a sinner. They're so cute, but they're little sinners, right? They're sinful and then we little babies grow up and we become big babies, big baby sinners, big people, big sinners, right? That's just the flesh, flesh is flesh. That's what men and women produce. But this is also true. The spirit makes alive and by analogy gives birth to spiritual people. Spiritual people who see with spiritual eyes, right? The reference in verse three, and now are given spiritual feet so that as they walk, 
with Christ, they walk with spiritual feet into the kingdom of God in a spiritual way. And Jesus simply tries to exhort Nicodemus, because his head is probably spinning right now, in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't marvel. That regeneration is something that the Holy Spirit does. You must be born from above. It's sovereign. It comes from above. Don't be filled with wonder. Don't be filled with astonishment. But this Pharisee and ruler of the Jews and doctor of theology should have understood the reference to Ezekiel 36. Problem is he did not. So this real saving grace is what we call operative grace. Okay, I need to explain what that means, but I need to tell you it's not cooperative grace. Okay, see, we believe that the grace of God operates on dead people. Some people, like the Roman Catholic Church, teach that the grace of God cooperates. So I'm going to give you a simple analogy. Pretend there's a dead person on a slab at the bottom of a hospital in the morgue. They're dead. That's how we're described in the scriptures, dead. And here comes the Holy Spirit of God, and he's going to operate in such a way that he grants life, and all of a sudden that dead person comes alive and sits up. Operative grace. The Roman Catholic way is, well, there's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, Nate, can you, uh, can you help me with these instruments here? I need your help. I need you to cooperate with me. We're going to operate on you together because you're not really dead. You're mostly dead. Remember that movie? You're mostly dead. So you're going to operate on you with me. And how are you going to do that? Well, every single cult ever known to man has always said, you need to do this, 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 and this to cooperate with God because you need the grace of God. But that's cooperative grace. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about operative grace, not cooperative grace, because the grace of God is not something that we cooperate with, with our own works, righteousness. And hopefully you understand that you've understood that for a very long time now. But see, these are things that Nicodemus should have understood, right? A Pharisee, ruler of the Jews, a teacher of Israel, but Jesus Christ is going to continue to be a little bit patient with them. He says in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I'm sure everyone has been outside at some point where the wind has been blowing. And the wind just blows. And you hear the sound of it. And you see the little leaves rustle. And then you knew, oh, the wind was right there blowing these little leaves, right? So the work of the Spirit of God sovereignly saves sinners and makes them spiritual. And you and me and everyone will see the evidence of what just took place. The effect of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit is powerful because it produces results. It absolutely produces results. There are no spiritual stillbirths for the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit of God is irresistible and without complaint. You've also never seen a little leaf go, wait a minute, why did you move me? Wind? I've never heard a Christian complain and say, God, why did you save me? 
doesn't happen, at least not for real believers, or maybe not someone really struggling with their own faith. But this is what is true. You must be born again. You must be born alive. You must be made alive by the sovereign spirit of God. So Nicodemus down verse 9 answers Jesus and says to him, now he asks his second question. How can these things be? Let's stop and think about this for a minute, Jesus Christ. Do you know who I am? You mean my civil law keeping is not going to save me? The fact that I get along good with the people of Israel, the civil law that I follow, that's out? It's not going to save me? No, that's right. Well, you mean that the ceremonial law that we're following that helps us and regulates our worship, where we worship you through these ceremonial law, uh, that's not going to help me, Jesus? No. Well, what about the moral law? Certainly the moral law, right? Don't I have to cooperate with the moral law in order to help the Holy Spirit make me alive? No. That's cooperative grace again, right? I know. Titles. Doctor of theology. Pharisee. Ruler of the Jews. Wealthy Pharisee. Let's not forget that. John 19, right? Wealthy Pharisee. No, no, and no. So Jesus, are there no works righteousness that I can do that will save me? That's right, Nicodemus, no works righteousness. You must be born again, be born of, from above, and be made alive by the sovereign spirit. Jesus answers him in, 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 in verse 10. Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things. We would say in our modern times, really? You don't understand these things? You're a physicist, and you still believe in evolution? See, people will hold on to anything instead of embracing the sovereignty of God. Nicodemus, you're a well-esteemed, well-known, most famous teacher in the Sanhedrin. I'm giving you Sunday school stuff. Not adult Sunday school. I'm giving you kids Sunday school stuff. And you do not understand these things? Let me tell you why. Because you're not born again. You haven't been born from above. You have not been made alive by the sovereign Spirit of God, Nicodemus, which is why I tell you, you must be born again. You must be born from above and made alive by the sovereign spirit. So this is what we term in Reformed Baptist churches and other Reformed churches where regeneration precedes faith. Here's a great chapter on this great doctrine, and before anyone can exercise any spiritual faith, which is a grace given to us, which we'll look at next, he or she must be born again. And, and I know this text refers to the Holy Spirit as a sovereign spirit who makes alive 
Yes, the Bible does teach that God the Father also makes alive in 1 Peter 1. Yes, uh, 1 John teaches that God the Son makes alive. All that's to say, brethren, the Holy Trinity is involved in making dead sinners alive to God. So not only must you be born again, be born from above and made alive by the sovereign spirit, but second, look at verse 11. You must believe in, place your faith in, and entrust yourself to the sovereign Savior. Verse 11, truly, truly, there it is the third time. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know, and we bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Remember how Nicodemus started in verse 2, Rabbi. All this honor, we know you've come as a teacher performing signs. We're witnessing these things. But now Jesus is going to step it up a notch and use some courtroom language. We bear witness. This is courtroom language. In the context of John, so far, not later on, but so far, two have borne witness to Jesus Christ. If you go back, just turn one page probably to John chapter 1, verse 32. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, This is now God the Father, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, this is John now, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So not only is God the Trinity involved in bearing witness, but specifically we need two, right? They need to have seen it. And heard it according to Leviticus 5.1 in order to be a qualified witness. But in order to make sure that something absolutely took place, you need Deuteronomy 19.15. So we have John the Baptist and, John, uh, and God the Father. God the Father speaking of his son, but John the Baptist specifically bearing witness of Jesus Christ. We speak that which we know and we bear witness that of that which we have seen. And here's the problem. You don't believe our witness. We're not credible to you. You haven't believed us. Yet, you must believe in, place your faith in, and entrust yourself to the sovereign Savior of whom John and God the Father have borne witness to. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, right? And what are those, uh, what are some of those earthly things? You know, the leave thing, right? And mommy's giving birth kind of a thing. Earthly things, simple things that you should understand. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I can't start off with all the hard stuff, right? Don't, isn't that what we do with our children? We just give them the basics first. And then we add more on top of that and more on top of that. Jesus is being really kind to to Nicodemus here, I think. But your problem is not just that you don't understand these things, 
Nicodemus earlier, because that's what I questioned of you, you being the teacher of Israel, not understanding these things. But here Jesus really exposes the essential problem. You don't believe me. If you don't believe in Jesus, it's because you don't believe him. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus appeals to his credentials as a trustworthy witness now in verse 13. And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the son of man. I know you're a teacher of Israel. I know you're a Pharisee. You're a doctor of theology. But let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm the one who came down from heaven. My name is the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. I'm not a natural man. I'm not like you, Nicodemus. I'm the Son of Man. I descended because I was sent with authority from my Father. And now we're going to get to that simile that we, that we re, uh, sang about in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So in Numbers, let me, let me find it here. I want to read this text to you as well. In Numbers 20, 21, 8 and 9, here's what it says. Now, you remember the story, right? Old covenant Israel, just like always, sinned. They complained against Moses. So what does God do? God sends fiery serpents among them. They bite the people. Many people died. They confess their sins to Moses, and Moses intercedes for them. God tells them, put a snake on a pole, lift it up, so that all the people have to do is just look. That's all they have to do. They have to look. Let me read this to you. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Very simple. Now think about this. Moses interceded for the people. And who is our great mediator now, an interceder now before God? Just one man, the man Christ Jesus. But instead of uh, uh, Jesus putting something else on a pole for people to look at, you know, he puts himself up on the cross so that the world might observe him. He must be lifted up. This Jesus this son of man must be lifted up. He must be lifted up. Just like Moses was able to save the people of God in the old covenant with one look, Jesus saves people now under the new covenant with one look. And we're not talking about necessarily, absolutely, we're not talking about trying to conjure up an image in your mind, in your head. We're not asking anybody to go to a picture and look at Jesus with physical eyes. We're not talking about physical eyes or our imagination. That would be idolatry, but it's a look of faith. It's the look of faith that saves. It's believing in this Jesus, in this Son of Man. It's believing in His credentials as a trustworthy witness of whatever He and the Father say about Himself. 
Here's the promise. Verse 15. Here's the promise. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This is, this is as wide as you could possibly make it. Whoever, whoever, if they look to Jesus, they'll be made alive. Young people, this is why we pray for you. We want you to look to Jesus with eyes of faith. We want you to believe him with eyes of faith. Old people, <laughs> older people, older young people. We want you to look to Jesus and be saved. This is a promise from Jesus Christ. He's a credible and trustworthy witness. You can believe him. If he says, if you look to me, you will be saved and you will have eternal life. Any sinner, any color, any place, any size, any IQ, any title, any amount of money, if you just look to Jesus, you'll be saved. By looking to Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith, you will have eternal life. Because that's the issue, isn't it? Nicodemus is curious, isn't he? He's been looking at the signs, right? He knows the Old Testament scriptures, and he sees this one coming, the coming one, and he's questioning, is this the Messiah? Is it over for the Romans? Do we get our place in this world now? I'm going to have a great seat in the temple as a Pharisee if this is the guy. That's his question. You must believe in, place your faith in, and entrust yourself to the sovereign Savior if you want eternal life. So here comes probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Why? Well, there's a because here. Because or for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, there's that word again, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. Now this is going to be, if you're not Nicodemus, it, it, it doesn't shock you, right? But if you're Nicodemus, it shocks you. Let me tell you why. Because in 1 John 2, 2, we're told of the Jews and the world. Whom did Jesus come to save? Well, us and them. We say Jew and Gentile. God loves Gentiles, Nicodemus. And he gave in the covenant of redemption his only begotten son for the redemption of Gentiles. Not just Jews, not just his old covenant people, but whoever believes in the Son of Man, whoever entrusts him or herself to this Son of Man, whoever believes the witness of this Son of Man. Not just Jew, but Gentile. Jesus Christ not, is not just a Savior of Jews. He's a Savior of Gentiles. I don't hear any amens. But you should be, because I don't see any Jews in here. Right? I'm a Gentile. 
I'm an Argentine Gentile. I see a Mexican Gentile, a Japanese Gentile, right? An Anglo-American. I think you're part Irish, Evan, or something. You got red hair. I don't know what's going on there. Jamaican Gentiles. Jesus Christ came to save Jew and Gentile. Right? Whoever believes in him will not perish. That's the, pro the promise. You will have eternal life. Right? Now, the Jews in the Old Testament, they, they looked at Isaiah uh, chapter 60, verses 1 and 2, with regard to the Messiah, and there's a word that, that says darkness in there. When the Messiah comes, we're going to get all kinds of benefits. Ah, but them Gentiles, they're going to get the darkness of God, right? We don't like the Gentiles, right? I mean, in a sense, I kind of understand because, you know, the Gentiles were such a big problem for the Jews and caused them to stumble into sin a lot, right? But they didn't understand Isaiah 60. So the tradition of the elders, the tradition of these doctors of theology was, listen, when this Messiah comes and here comes a man doing some signs, when he comes, we're wiping out the Gentiles. This is a shocker for God so loved the world. God loves Gentiles. Praise the Lord. Nasty, sinning, pagan Gentiles, just like the Jews. Just like this Nicodemus. Right? This Son of Man promises eternal life to whosoever believes, Jew or Gentile. Again, we get another because in verse 17. Or, and here's what God did not do. I failed to mention in verse 16. Here's what God did do in verse 17. Here's what God did not do. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. You see that? Again, this is a shocker for this doctor of theology in Israel. What do you mean? We're not judging the Gentiles. We're not judging the world when the Messiah comes. You mean I've been reading Isaiah 60 all wrong all my life? Yeah. Well, there goes that piece of paper, right? Your doctor of theology. Sorry. See, the mission of Jesus in the first coming was to save and not judge or some versions say condemn. We've heard that word condemn a lot today, right? In the first sermon this morning right? Jesus has come not to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And this Jewish doctor of theology got it all wrong from Isaiah 60. But here's the point. You must believe in, place your faith in, and entrust yourself to this sovereign Savior who has come in signs and wonders. He's worthy enough for you to trust his witness. John testified. John testified of the words of God. But his particular words, you can trust what he says. Not only must you be born again, be born above, from above, and made alive by the sovereign spirit. Not only must you be believe in, place your faith in, and entrust yourself to the sovereign Savior, but now thirdly, lastly, you must repent of your sins and turn to the practice of the holiness of a sovereign God. 
you must repent of your sins and turn to the practice of the holiness of a sovereign God. This is a segue verse, verse 18, in part. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe has been judged or condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, we've been using this word believe a lot in this text, right? That's the issue. How may I have eternal life? You must believe, right? And if you believe, you're not condemned. But what happens if I don't believe? What happens if you're not believing today, right now? Because it says, he who does not believe has been judged already. And uh, the, uh, my understanding is the Persian New Testament, instead of saying has been condemned already, says, and has been condemned from the beginning. You're still stuck to Adam. Remember Adam, your federal head in the garden? You're condemned already from the beginning because you won't attach yourself to this Savior because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The name of, the full character of Jesus Christ. This is why you have to have a, a very good and complete Christology about Jesus. It's not just any Jesus. There's a lot of false Jesuses out there. You know that, don't you? There's the false Jesus of Roman Catholicism. Oh, he died on the cross, but it wasn't good enough. <laughs> we need you to cooperate with your spirit, right? There's the false Jesus of Mormonism. Brother of Satan, better plan, right? Creation created himself. There's a lot of false Jesuses, but you need at least the right data so that you can believe in the right Savior. He who believes in him is not judged. You must believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The only. There is no other. The scriptures are very adamant about that. There is only one man that can mediate between us and God. One name above all names through whom we may be saved. The only begotten Son of God. I want you to consider not believing in this Son of God is a great offense to God. It is an absolute insult to God the Father who sent His Son. He sent His Savior. He wants you to believe. You must believe if you want eternal life. But some of you don't. Some of you don't. Many who I talk to, and if you've ever evangelized, they will not believe in Jesus Christ. It's a great offense to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God the Father. You cannot have his approval in any way. Look at Romans 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith in what? Just faith in faith? Right? That's what our society... Well, just believe. Hopefully it works out. No. Faith in Him, in the only begotten Son of God. You must believe. 
And when you don't, this greatly offends God. And here's why. Because you think in the back of your mind or somehow my works are good and I don't need the works of Jesus. Come on. Right? I'm good enough, aren't I? I've never, I heard this all, all the time from my father. Never murdered anyone. Never lied. Well, you just lied, Dad. I don't lie. I don't murder. You know, I don't steal. Yeah, works righteousness. No, sorry. No titles, no works righteousness, no law that you can keep will save you. And this is the judgment, verse 19. That the light is coming to the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. This is the judgment, the condemnation. This is what brings condemnation upon men. This is what confirms their condemnation. They love their darkness. Salvation is a heart issue. You either love your sin or you love Jesus. I mean, as extreme as those two can, I can possibly make them, right? Either Jesus is my savior, and yes, I'm a crummy Christian sometimes, and I blow it, but I love Jesus. I don't want to love my sin. I want eternal life. I trust this savior. But others are like, no, I love my sin. You know, we, we love inviting our neighbors to church. It's kind of, it's kind of fun. Hey, we saw another couple this morning. Hey, you want to come to church with us? Paul in the car. Oh, no, 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 thank you. Where are you going? I'm going to yoga. Breaks my heart. They love their sin. Jesus tells us in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. You know what light does, right? It exposes the darkness. This is what it does. And there's darkness in your heart when you don't believe in Jesus because you love your sin or anything other than the witness and testimony of the Savior of himself. You don't want his testimony. You don't want his witness. You don't want the Savior. You just want your sin. This is the problem, Nicodemus. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus, John 8, 12. And those same men who believed in him, but Jesus said, I'm not entrusting myself to you. So there was something lacking in that kind of faith. Those same men, it says, loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. See, that's just the proof in the pudding. That's the proof in the pudding, right? Their hands won't stop sinning because their heart won't stop loving their sin. Not abandoning your sin and not believing the words of this Son of God greatly offends God. You must repent of your sins and turn to the practice of holiness of a sovereign God. We're going to get another because statement now in verse 20. Because, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. 
right? There's the doing in verse 20. There's the practicing in verse 21. There's synonymous terms. Again, he's saying pretty much in a different way what he said in verse 19. Men love the darkness. Here he says, men or evil hate the light. See, it's a hard issue. It's in the heart. The heart needs to be dealt with. They love their darkness. They hate the light. Sinners do not want to come to the light or their, or their deeds will be exposed, discovered by others, perhaps. They might be shamed, right? Or made manifest to others as being evil and contrary to holiness. I saw this um, thing on the news. Um, all these people that, that work for Disney are suddenly getting in trouble for a lot of bad things related to kids. You know what I'm talking about? Disneyland. You figure, we love kids. We don't want to hurt them. But their deeds are being exposed. So it's a heart issue. Everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't want to come to the light. They go away from the light. This is why churches are not filled every Sunday morning. Saturday would be like a Bible study. Yeah. We hold these truths precious to ourselves. These truths come from the scriptures. And no one's dying to come in through those doors. Very sad. You must repent of your sins and turn to the practice of the holiness of a sovereign God. You must hate your sin. You must love the light. You must hate the darkness. You must stop your evil deeds. Or you'll be exposed. That's what Jesus came to do. He is the light. He's exposing darkness. That's what light does by nature. Verse 21. But he who practices the truth, here's the repenter, right? I used to love my evil deeds. I used to love the darkness. I used to love falsehood and lying and all those things. But now he who practices the truth comes to the light. That's the Christian. That's the one who repents. And his deeds, or that his deeds, may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. Those Christians who come to the light share that light with others. Their good deeds are made manifest to other brethren, discovered by others as godly and holy living. All you have to think about is the testimony of any one of you. I used to be that way. I used to do those things, and now I don't. I repented. That your deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God, specifically God the Father, right? Ephesians 2.10, right? We've been created for good works that the Father has prepared for us. Not only does he will, but he also works in us for his good pleasure. You must repent of your sins and turn to the practice of the holiness of a sovereign God. Nicodemus may have gone to Jesus this evening at night 
just hoping for a little casual conversation, you know, doctor of theology to doctor of theology. Let's have some discussion, Jesus. Rabbi, master, teacher. Is that what you want, Nicodemus? You just want some theological discussion about the Messiah and how he's going to come and destroy the Gentiles. Listen, Nicodemus, you need eternal life. That's the problem right now. Jesus goes straight to the problem. How may I have eternal life? How may I have eternal life? Here's the answer. If you want eternal life, you must be born again. You must be born from above and made alive by the sovereign spirit. You must believe in, place your faith in, entrust yourself to the sovereign savior. You must repent of your sins and turn to the practice of the holiness of a sovereign God. So I ask you, dear Christian, are you believing in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins every single day? Another way to ask the same question is, are you growing in your faith and in your holiness? Are those two grace gifts, they're very basic, they're very simple. They're introduced here at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. Born again, believing and repenting. Are they a concern to you? Are they a joy to you? Are they difficult for you? I pray that you are believing in Jesus Christ every single day and repenting of your sins every single day. You know, that's kind of what we tell our kids, right? Repent, repent, believe, believe. They get in trouble all the time for little things. Stop, stop that. Stop poking your little brother. Stop that. Do this, believe, obey me, obey me, right? But the essence is one of the heart. The issue is one of the heart. And if you're not believing in Jesus Christ, why are you not believing in Jesus Christ? Why not? I know you may lack some understanding like Nicodemus did. You may not be a doctor of theology, so I get it. Some of these things are hard to understand, right? Peter said that a lot about Paul's writings. But that did not keep Nicodemus from going to Jesus Christ with honest questions, did it? He was not too scared to be shown he was incorrect. Because that's just pride. He went with honest questions. If you're not believing, you should ask questions. How may I believe? How may I have eternal life? How may I trust more? How may I trust better? Your moms and dads will help you. Absolutely. And why are you not repenting of your sins? If you're not believing, you're not repenting. No evangelical faith means no evangelical repentance. Well, you know why? Because Jesus said it. He said, he said this, you love the darkness. It's a heart issue. However, as I mentioned earlier, the free offer of God's grace is very real and it goes out to the world, to Gentiles, to whoever. Do you fit in that category? 
to sinners. Yes, you fit in that category, don't you? The gospel commands you, even though you don't want to believe, the gospel commands you to believe. Even though you don't want to repent and you love your sin and you don't love the light, the gospel commands you to repent. And this command is good and gracious because it seeks your well-being. God in this gospel wants to offer you life. Or the alternative is you will certainly die in your sins. You're still stuck to Adam. And if you die stuck to Adam, it's because you've been condemned already. So if you have a friend who's a real believer, most likely they won't stop telling you about the gospel. Don't, don't run away from them, kids, right? When your parents talk to you about the Bible, talk to you about the gospel, don't just be eager to go and play. Listen. Listen to the gospel. It's good for you. We must, as believers, always, always, always plead to our friends on behalf of their souls because they will not. A philosopher and theologian once said it this way. This is Cornelius Van Til. When unbelievers, for whom my wife and I pray constantly, are born anew, born from above, as Jesus tells Nicodemus, they must be to see or enter the kingdom of heaven. Then we have common ground and will together call other spiritually dead people to repentance and life. Van Til said that. That's what we're doing, brethren. We're calling spiritually dead people to believe and repent of their sins. How may you have eternal life? You must be born from above. You must believe in Jesus. You must repent of your sins. Believe and repent. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the author of faith, the perfecter of faith. Lord, you have made this offer of the gospel free because of your son, Jesus Christ, the one sent who testifies of himself. Father, may you grant that every single little one, middle one, or older one believe now. Father, we ask, give us grace as we seek to evangelize the lost, our neighbors, those with whom we work, maybe even some in our own families. Father, give us the grace of patience. Father, give us a, a godly zeal for their souls. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.